Welcome to the Work Home Project podcast. As you may know, the way we work is changing. Millions of us have now been working from home over the COVID-19 period, and many employers and employees alike are finding that this works for them. Cutting down on wasteful journeys has dramatically reduced pollution. Businesses are lowering their overheads through a more effective use of space and time. Cities are becoming more friendlier for walking and cycling. And people are spending more time in their neighbourhoods, potentially boosting their local economy. We, the Work Home Project, are made up of an ever-growing group of academics, architects and researchers, all advocating for growth in home-based working. We want to see a change in the way that we design and build cities, and a change in the policy that defines how we use them. For further information, or to join our network, please visit our website at www.workhomeproject.org. As part of our efforts, Francis Hollis and myself, Richard Brown, have recorded some of our conversations from during lockdown, where we discussed some of the more important issues around home-based work. We've created a mini-series with three episodes, focusing on, first of all, social inequality in the home and in the workplace. Uh, The second is on design for home-based working. And the third is on governance and all the planning issues around home-based working. The aim of these podcasts are to discuss in detail what the future of home-based working might look like for our towns and cities. So we're going to discuss everything to do with home-based working from its history through to the current COVID-19 crisis. We're going to draw on the latest statistics and our own field research and expert knowledge. And hopefully along the way, we'll bring in some expert home-based workers from today. Francis Hollis is an architect and emeritus reader in architecture at the London Metropolitan University. She is an expert in home-based working and speaks on the subject internationally. She has a book which you must check out. It's called Beyond Live Work, The Architecture of Home-Based Working. I am Richard Brown. I'm an architectural designer and urbanist who's interested in the informal live work collectives in East London. Um, Do check out my book. It's called The Creative Factories of Hackneywick and Fish Island. Okay, so on this episode, we're going to talk about social inequality. The COVID-19 pandemic has exposed glaring inequalities in our society with regard to housing. Those with plenty of space and a decent garden have had a completely different experience to those who live in high-rise flats and are experiencing overcrowding and have a limited access to outdoor space. But the pandemic has exposed another level of uh, inequality in our society, and I think that's to do with who can and cannot work from home. So in this episode, we're going to tease out some of the underlying issues and consider how some of these issues might be addressed by a change in housing design or a change in policy, or perhaps just a change in cultural awareness. So my first question to Francis was, what has COVID-19 told us about who can and cannot work from home? I think this is a really interesting issue. Um, There was a a YouGov survey um, mid-May that showed very clearly a difference between middle-class workers and working-class workers. So that showed that most middle-class people were working from home, while only a fifth of working-class people were working from home. And obviously this has really major consequences both in terms of um, unemployment, uh, people who aren't working, but also in terms of actually 
the sector of the population that is endangering itself by having to leave the home in order to go to work. So we've got a really big divide in class terms about who has and who hasn't been able to work from home. And then the, the surveys that have come out um, in terms of finding out how people responded to working from home has shown that, that where people have got uh, space, um, they've really, really enjoyed it. So there's a survey done by Europe Ignite and um, Unispace of 620 asset managers. And, and that came out as people overwhelmingly enjoying doing it. Uh, they found they were healthier, they were happier. Some of them had got three extra hours a day um, because they didn't have to, have to commute. Nobody missed the commute. They were, they were really enjoying spending more time with their families. Um, they were exercising by taking the dog for the walk rather than going to the gym, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there's another survey done by Deloitte of millennials, which quite surprised me. So I wasn't surprised by the asset managers because they had an average income of £80,000 and housing to match. Okay, so that, that puts them very clearly in the middle class bracket of people who have been able to work from home and who have thoroughly enjoyed it. Deloitte did a survey of millennials, um, and this one did surprise me because it showed that 60% um, of millennials would like to carry on working from home and that, that most millennials have been able to work from home and have enjoyed it um, and would like to continue it. Um, I gave a, a webinar in Chandigarh in Northern India um, recently, and I just asked a couple of the questions to the audience there um, from the asset managers survey, because I'd been passed that to comment on it. And what I found was really interesting was that there, obviously with a very different socioeconomic bracket, um, we've got people who enjoyed it as much and who wanted to carry on doing it, but who experienced substantial problems in terms of the amount of space they've got and the amount of spatial separation they were able to achieve between um, their household and their work and therefore how productive they were because what was really interesting with both the millennial and the um, the asset managers survey is that they found that they were more productive at home so this is a sort of win-win situation these statistics are all very interesting and encouraging but then we have to take very seriously that people who aren't able to do it who tend to be the young and the poor so I think people who are in overcrowded um, housing and whose work does not easily translate into the home have uh, suffered disproportionately during the, the, the lockdown. So the statistics tell us perhaps unsurprisingly that working from home doesn't benefit the poorer parts of our society. And this is because of the types of work they do not being permitted from home. And even if they were permitted from home, there may be some real issues because of overcrowding or difficulty in separating living from working. Francis now goes on to talk about the history of home-based work, which is really important because it turns out all cities seem to be built based around home-based work. And that home-based work was carried out by all parts of society, perhaps in particular the working classes. So I asked Francis why this changed over time. If we go back in history and we look at how the city was at the end of the 19th century it 
it was filled with all sorts of nooks and crannies, yards, courts, in which the working classes were able to carry out their work. Um, so you would have people working in uh, making and mending um, in all sorts of areas, all sorts of uh, basically blue collar tasks or service tasks that were carried out, but primarily blue collar, that were carried out in these nooks and crannies in the city. And one of the one of the things that happened, I think, which has had a sort of really major impact on the ability of working class people to work from home. I mean, obviously, there are lots and lots of factors. And what I'm 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 very focused on home based work and the way that the built environment actually supports it or or impedes it. So if we look at the history of what happened to the city um, at the end of the 19th century, um, we find that we find that these nooks and crannies were basically erased when the slums of the East End London of London were um, when they were raised and when the uh, the housing that replaced them um, they didn't they rebuilt it in a completely different way and I think that this was in part. Uh, I mean, obviously, the, the primary purpose of the housing that replaced the slums was to create healthy, um, sanitary, well-lit spaces for poor people to live because the, the levels of overcrowding and poor sanitation were appalling. And so, so that was their, their fundamental first aim. But there was also an underlying agenda to reform the morals of the poor. And there was a division at that time. They had these this ideas, these two, two um, opposing ideas of the, the deserving poor and the undeserving poor. And one of the, one of the ideas behind this was uh, there was really widespread disapproval of home-based work. The um, employers didn't like it because it reduced the control they had over their workers. The unions didn't like it because they were very concerned about an unregulated and vulnerable um, uh, uh, group of people who are working from home. But they also felt that it undermined their campaign for a male family wage. Um, social reformers didn't like it because they elided the issue of home-based work with the appalling problems they encountered when they went into the slums of overcrowding and poor sanitation. And last but not least, um, there was a, the sort of widespread um, conservative with a small c um, public opinion was that a woman's place was in the home, domestic and not income generating. And so um, if, if one looks at the, the history of the, 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 the rent collectors, the, the social housing movement, um, basically the housing that was created was designed expressly to prevent home-based work. So it didn't allow the, the sort of sheds and extensions and yards where people had worked. And it was managed through tenancy agreements that prohibited home-based work. And the deserving poor were the people who had a job where, the, where there was a, usually a male family member who went out to work. And this really suppressed home-based work for the poor.
uh, because it was extremely difficult. Well, they lost their jobs if they worked from home in the, in the new social housing. So industrialization and the subsequent housing estates that were built obstructed the working classes from working from home. But Francis goes on to point out that this housing model had the effect of cementing in gender stereotypes into the built form. The housing estates that were built um, in the early 20th century, you know, like um, Beckentree, which is later called Dagenham, was 23,000 homes, um, which were palatial in terms of space and and uh, sort of uh, the, the services, you know, inside bathrooms, running hot water, etc., etc. But they weren't allowed to work from home. Home-based work was prohibited. And so what that did was it led to um, and in a way, well, maybe not as an unintended consequence, it probably was actually a direct consequence and potentially deliberate, was that it led to um, serious, the imposition of serious gender roles of the man, the man going out to work and the woman staying at home with the children. And I think that this has, this has continued and I think that the Victorian ideal of the the, the clean, safe, feminine, uh, domestic environment, the home, and the idea of the, the sort of more masculine world of work, um, I think it still permeates the way that we think about home and work today. So that split between home and workplace has come along with a split, it seems, between the roles for men and women the male in the all-male office and the female housewife in the suburban house with surrounded by a white picket fence. Now, society for sure has moved along from a lot of these 20th century ideals, but has the way we design and conceive of housing changed very much to reflect this? That legacy continues and, um, and, and in a way it's problematic when the legacy is actually uh, built into the fabric of society so it's in the it's in the the structure of our homes a lot of our households no longer are are um nuclear families you know people 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 want to live in different ways but we still design our housing in 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 ways that 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 we have that haven't changed very much um and that still embody these actually these same idea of really the male family wage earner and the the female person staying at home looking after the children and i think in covid this has been a really really interesting thing because the the gender inequality that has become apparent in households with children is um something that we've always known about but it's almost like it's it's structural that it is expected that women will do the lion's share of the childcare as well as um, their paid work. And obviously expecting anyone to do childcare while they're working is a nearly impossible task. But I think it's interesting how it's exposed um, the sort of status quo, if you like. So one mother I spoke to from during the lockdown as part of this episode confirmed to me that both parents being able to work from home has really helped them to share their childcare responsibilities. So I asked Francis to elaborate on the ways in which home-based work 
can help bring about more quality in the home in terms of caregiving and other domestic responsibilities? One of the things that I've been aware of um, where I am in Hackney in East London is actually in the afternoon suddenly seeing this thing that one has never seen before, which is men out with a buggy and a child on a bike taking the children to the park. And it's like, aha, this is different. And I think that the enforced home-based work as a result of COVID may well open up real possibilities in households for a much more equal approach to um, childcare and domestic responsibilities. Because I think there has been, until COVID, um, an underlying unease with working from home because people didn't feel that it was the proper work, that actually proper work was done in the workplace. But I think that what we've seen with COVID is we've seen all our top scientists, our top politicians, our po- po- top policy makers and, and decision makers, we've seen them all in their domestic, domestic environments. And um, what we know from the research that's coming out from the, the pandemic is that people have been um, more productive, not less productive from working at home. And then of course, if men can work at home without a loss of status or esteem, then suddenly the possibility of them being much more equally involved in the domestic aspect of of the household um, becomes really, really possible which is an extremely interesting and slightly unexpected outcome from and i'm sure there will be a a load of research on how this moves forward after the pandemic is has died down so i wanted to talk about the people who've been working from home long before covid19 Francis's research suggests and shows that there is a wider gamut of the population who've been working from home invisibly. I asked her, who are they and why are they hidden? Um, Many groups of home-based workers have chosen to stay hidden, um, to work covertly, because there are so many rules and regulations um, that have built up over the last 100 years that actually were designed to to prevent home-based work, to make it difficult, that people, they, they fear that they might be breaking some regulation or other, or they actually are. And I think this has been, this has applied to people who did knowledge work, if you like, working on a computer, equally to people who did other sorts of work. But in some ways, it's far more pertinent to people who do a wide range of other sorts of work that doesn't easily fit into a standard home that's just been designed as somewhere where people can cook and eat and bathe and sleep and look after their children and watch television. So the artists who use space differently or makers, people who need a workshop, um, and this very often actually applies to blue collar workers. So I've interviewed a really surprising number of motor mechanics who either live in their workshop or who have built a huge, great workshop hidden behind their bungalow or or whatever it is, but who who need serious space in order to work, but who also uh, 
want to work from home because what that does is it makes their business affordable. So instead of having to pay two lots of bills, um, rent or whatever for two properties and all the overheads, they only have one. And then they also have that flexibility of being able to work at any time when they, when they choose to. So I think um, the joiners, the curtain makers, the motor mechanics, the cooks, the, um, there's a sort of whole range of practical craft-based occupations that tend to be hidden as home-based occupations because in some ways they fall foul of either planning or property taxation regulations. So I asked Frances to elaborate on what her research shows about how home-based workers adapt and use their homes to meet the requirements of their occupations. I think that some people have enough space and their work is such that they can um, they can work in their home. Sometimes people will extend their homes. I'm thinking of a, a suburban hairdresser here. When she became a single parent, she started working having having clients at home so she um, could be there for her child but she hated the smell of the chemicals and she hated the mess that the hair the hair left around the house and so she she built an extension she got permission as a uh, a utility room but actually walking in it was completely extraordinary because it was a perfectly set up salon there and she worked and there's a very um respectable upstanding member of her suburban community um, but working completely illicitly because she knew that she wouldn't get planning permission. And she also knew that under the current regulations, she would have to pay business rates on her. It was a tiny salon, you know, it had two hairdressing chairs um, and she'd have to pay business rates and that would be sufficient to make her business not financially viable. And she said, it's double taxation. I, I pay my council tax anyway. I pay towards all my local services. And the way that it's, it's calculated would mean I have to pay business rates on top. And to be honest, I'm simply not prepared to do that. And so she ran her business um, secretly, but not that secretly because the entire community knew that she, and she, she catered to all the, the local little old ladies who would um, walk, walk along the street and, and have their hair cut with her. So from this case of the hairdresser, it's quite clear to see that there are so many reasons why home-based workers might hide their work and, and stay in the shadows. And many listeners to this podcast probably know somebody who runs that type of business from home. And you might be thinking, if it's so widespread, why is it not allowed? Well, we're going to get into this detail in the third episode of this podcast on governance, policy and tenure. So for now, I just asked Francis to highlight what the risks are to those who work from home covertly. Well, it's obviously really bad for people because in some ways they, they feel as if they're being criminalised. You know, we, we, we're used to sort of cohorts of young artists breaking into warehouses and, and squatting them and living um, unconventional and creative lifestyles together. And, that, and that's all very well and good. And they're, they're sort of really aware of what they're doing. But for really conventional members of society, it's a, it's a really big deal because they're, they find they're in some important way outside society and it leaves them with anxiety and fear 
in actually having to do that. And, and it's sort of um, counterproductive because she's, as a single parent, able to support her family and providing a really important and useful service in her neighborhood and not causing a nuisance to anybody. No one's ever complained. And so it, it seems to be a win-win situation to allow these things, but our regulations are way behind the curve. So now we've talked about people secretively working from home, hiding from the authorities. But my research shows that there's also people doing the inverse of this, which is to live in warehousing or live in a commercial space, uh, also illegally. And this has its own set of consequences. So not having a legitimate address will give you a lot of issues when it comes to trying to vote or get medical attention or open a bank account. So I asked Frances what her research had told her about this phenomenon as well. And I know exactly what you're talking about, the commercial people. I interviewed one furniture designer and maker who had his family living above his workshop in an industrial estate. And um, he couldn't get his children into school because you had to have a council tax um, receipt to get your children into school. And he paid business rates. And this was a really big problem. The, the problem with for people like the hairdresser, and um, I can think of a, a motor engineer as well, is the enormous danger of losing. Because I, to set up a salon, a home-based salon, or a home-based engineering workshop is a major investment. And if you lose your rights to use it, then... I mean, if you're found out and you're stopped, this is, this is a catastrophe. And in fact, I was involved recently in one such case where a neighbor fell out with the motor engineer and shopped them to the planners. And the planners pounced. But luckily, he'd been there for more than 12 years, which meant he had established use. And so um, he, he could get retrospective planning permission. So we've established generally that those who work from home or live at work have been doing so at great risk. But a lot of these people have been able to deal with this risk either by amending their houses or by applying for the correct planning permission. However, those in social housing don't have these options. So Francis and I discussed the houses that are being built for social housing and the rules that are being put in place to manage them. I think this is a really interesting issue because if you look at the housing that I spoke about earlier, which was designed to prevent home-based work, um, and then you look at a lot of the housing that's being built today, I think since 2002, 43% of what we've built is um, purpose-built flats in the UK. And purpose-built flats remain, my research suggests, the least favorable environment for um, home-based work. And this is because they tend to be built to very tight fit design principles, which means that each space has been designed with a particular function in mind. It's a kitchen, it's a living room, it's a bedroom, it's a bathroom, and they're not designed flexibly or, and they're not adaptable. You can't extend an apartment. You know, you haven't, if you've got a garden, you've got the option to put an extension on the back of your house and it can be really very tiny. I see, saw one person 
who built a really, really little alcove off her kitchen where she worked at her computer because she liked to work moving between the stove. She was a cook. She'd got a big family and she liked to work moving between the stove and the computer. And she spent all day moving between the two things and it worked, but it was tiny, but it was just having that space to be able to extend all people, lots and lots of the, the, the business of, of building um, garden rooms, you know, the sort of garden office is booming at the moment um, because this is, people like that spatial separation between their work and their home and they like the acoustic separation. Um, it's very difficult to work at the kitchen table if you've got um, a partner and a, a small child in the same space or, you know, running around. So I think that um, apartments, unless they're specifically designed, they tend to provide a very poor environment. So typical apartment buildings are not currently appropriate for home-based work. And in the UK, there are dwelling space standards which define how large a house should be and what functions should fit into it. And we're going to discuss these in detail in our third episode of this podcast. But for now, we wanted to also look at the other constraints that are creating difficulties for home-based work in social housing. And the other one, for sure, is this standard tenancy agreement. So I asked Francis to elaborate on what's in these tenancy agreements and how they're used. They also tend to be designed to um, nationally described space standards, which are now um, not fit for purpose in the face of home-based work, um, and then managed through tenancy agreements that still either prohibit or at least prevent tenancy. I mean, if you go to any standard commercial tenancy agreement you can get online, there's a clause preventing people from running businesses at home. Some, some old, of the older tenancy agreements prohibit homeless work. Most uh, permit it, but in negative terms, and people have to have um, permission. And my research suggests that people don't ask for permission because they don't want to be turned down, because often people who work from home do so because this is the option that makes sense to them very often because they're weaving in um, caring responsibilities um, that make it very difficult for them to actually go out to work or because there are other factors that make it difficult for them to go out to work like um, disability or chronic illness, low levels of education or cultural issues that mean that um, working outside the home is not an option. So it came to our attention that the New York City Housing Authority created a set of criteria to allow some of their social housing tenants to be able to work within the projects. So I passed this criteria on to Frances and asked her what her thoughts were on what those criteria mean for who can and cannot work from home. I think these sorts of things need to be looked at really closely. Basically, it says that you can work from home, you can run a business from home so long as. And then there's a list of a dozen occupations that you're not allowed to run business from home. Uh, a lot of them are absolutely fine. You're not allowed to um, deal drugs and you're not allowed to break the law and you're not allowed to do anything that's going to cause uh, noxious fumes. But in amongst that, you're not allowed to be a hairdresser you're not allowed to do any beauty work and you're not allowed to cook 
Now, I think those three are really questionable because a lot of working class home-based workers work in hairdressing, in cooking or in beauty. So we know that social housing tends to actually prevent home-based work within their buildings because of design and legislation, which is a huge shame because it seems that the benefits of home-based work are probably more important within social housing. So we discussed what those benefits might be and, and why they're so important for social housing. If you look at it, almost every, anybody who has a home has a service that they can sell in that home, whether it's painting nails or hairdressing, whether it's, um, you know, there's a, a sort of very wide range of things that people can actually do. Um, and, and it seems to me to be really important that there's no uh, blockage to allowing people to, you know, people want to work in my experience, you know, people don't choose, choose to be unemployed, but in UK social housing, unemployment runs at twice the level um, amongst working age population as in um, in other other housing sectors and I think this is a really serious statistic that needs to, I mean obviously there are multiple causes to this I'm not saying the whole thing is uh, related to obstructions to working from home but working from home is a, a really interesting route to helping um, social tenants into employment. From here we went on to discuss home-based work in relation to those with additional care needs. Uh, so here we're talking about the disabled and the elderly, amongst others. Not only do these people have issues working from home, they often have issues accommodating living carers who also need to work within their homes. It, it's such a brilliant piece of the jigsaw because um, in a way, the whole idea of designing lifetime homes is about trying to create homes that work at every stage of people's lives. And small children, disability, poor health, and being cared for are likely to be part of most people's life trajectory, if you like. But our homes really don't, aren't designed to accommodate this. And so, um, you know, when if you have a carer that visits, then they're going into a home, but it is their workplace. So what does that mean in terms of both the, the person who's being cared for, that suddenly their home is a workplace as well, and also for the worker. But this is even more the case when you have a live-in carer. So live-in carers, how is... The, the home of the person that they're looking after, how does this work as a carer's both home and workplace? And I think these are really, really interesting design issues that are rarely tackled. I mean, one of the things that's um, developing in the Netherlands, the Netherlands have a very interesting law about claiming expenses for home-based work uh, against tax and people are allowed to do it so long as their home has two front doors. And so um, you have to have a separate entrance for the two, the two different functions. And this is something that's embedded in, in uh, Dutch law. And it's leading to apartments being built with two front doors. And of course, then suddenly, the minute you've got a separate entrance, you can create um, separate realms in the home 
for either work or for home. And that can be for either for the person who's living there working, but it also can be space for a carer. You know, it can be a, a completely separate space for the carer to treat as their own home with its own entrance. So they can come and go um, without being, without surveillance, if you like, from their employee, which I think is a really, really interesting development in terms of housing design. So we now start to talk about solutions. I asked Francis, what are the changes that are needed so that everybody in our society can benefit from home-based working? Her reply is that everything from our work culture, the way we design buildings and the way we write policy needs to be reviewed through a lens of home-based work. So first she talks about the rigid separation between home and workplace. I think that the sort of the silos, I mean, this is going to be, if you like, the biggest and most challenging change is that one of the reasons that home-based work has remained invisible for so long is that our society is organized on, on really rigid silos. You know, it's housing or it's employment. And actually, home-based work falls between the two. And a lot of our regulations, a huge amount of our thinking is organized within these silos and it's cross-silo thinking that has to happen, sort of out-of-the-box thinking that will start to change the regulations like our binary um, property taxation system. We then went on to consider who in society needs the change the most and what that change might be. I think the middle classes are mostly all right. I mean, it, obviously, things could be better. But most middle class home based workers that I've had experience of accommodate their home based work through under occupation. You know, they've got a spare bedroom, they've got an underused dining room, they've got a garage that can be turned into a workspace or they've got space in the garden somewhere. But it's the it's the poor and the young that I think we really, really need to think about tenancy agreements immediately. I mean, the government tried to change this in 2010. But what you're, what you're trying to change is a, an enormous culture. And, and the culture is, I think it's a form of discrimination. I ran a, a project on home-based work with a, a large London housing trust. And I took the, the chief executive out, of lunch, out to lunch to propose it. And her first reaction was, you couldn't do that. They disturb their neighbours. And there is this sort of lingering idea that social tenants will start uh, panel beating in their living rooms. And I said to her, I said, do you work from home? And she went, yes. I said, do you disturb your neighbours? And she looked at me and I said, I think you really have to challenge your ideas here. And in fact, I think that there are these discriminatory ideas about who social tenants are and um, what sort of businesses they will run and what sort of negative impact that might have on their, their surroundings. So tenancy agreements need to encourage home-based working where possible. But with this, we know that there needs to be a change in the way housing is designed and built. And we're gonna get into this in detail in the next episode of this podcast on design. But just for this point, it's also clear that conceptually we need an allowance for blue collar workspace that will allow a wider range of working practices from home or at least near to home. I think that housing design, I, I think there's a basic thing that housing has got to get bigger. 
I, I don't think there's a question about that. I think our nationally described space standards will have to in, increase to accommodate home-based work. But I think that really clever design can also get around this issue. Home-based work can be achieved in very small spaces if they're really beautifully designed. It's completely ingrained now that the home is just a place where you don't work. You just do domestic things. There is no reason why we shouldn't have um, uh, work homes that include workshops, that include uh, occupations that are traditionally a bit noisy, a bit dirty, a bit smelly. No big deal. I mean, if you look at, at cities like Sheffield with the steel industry, the terraces of houses are absolutely interspersed with yards, with, with workshops. You know, and this is how people used to work and live. And I mean, obviously, there are, there are health and safety issues about noxious fumes, but so much uh, work can be carried out um, without causing any harm. Um, and it would be really, really interesting to start to think about designing housing that incorporated spaces for working class people to carry out these, um, these craft-based trades. So, in summary, big systemic change is needed. Now, this may seem utopian to some, but what we do know is that many of us have now been working from home and quite like it and would like to continue to do so to some extent. And I think this episode has brought to light all the positive ways in which home-based working can readdress some of those social inequalities in our society. We've looked at how it could encourage a greater sharing of responsibilities in the home and undo some of the gender stereotypes. We've seen how it can encourage uh, potentially additional routes into employment within social housing. We've seen how it can legitimise the broader workforce that's been working secretively until now and let them continue working free of risk. We've seen how d design could allow us to create space for broader sections of our society to be able to work from home and start businesses. And we see how those of additional care needs would benefit from, from an encouragement of home-based working. Our next episode will be on design for home-based work, giving planners and designers ideas for how they can bring about the necessary changes. So this episode was written by myself, Richard Brown and Francis Hollis. It was edited by myself and the music was by Katrina Demigos. If you liked our episode, please rate us. If you have any questions about the topics or would like to join our network, please get in touch, www.workhomeproject.org.